Awareness is power. And it could save your life. Welcome to our podcast, No Risks. I'm Heather. And I'm Lee. We're two moms, a lawyer and a nurse, who were brought together by a misfortune. Both our children were harmed by adverse drug reactions. The purpose of this podcast is to educate people on the risk of any health treatments you put in or on your body. We feel if we'd been properly informed and been our own experts, our children would not have been harmed. In today's world, with medicines being incentivized for profits, you need to educate yourself. Know the risk of health treatments, and it could protect yourself and your loved ones from being harmed. Thank you for joining us today on our episode, The Cost of Being a David. We are honored to have Dr. Charles Bennett with us to discuss his new book, Taking on Big Pharma, Black Box Warnings, Citizens' Petitions, and his publication, David's versus Goliath, where he talks about his story and that of 26 others and how they were retaliated against for reporting on drug safety, effectiveness, and data integrity concerns. Here is Heather to tell us a little bit more about Dr. Charles Bennett. Thanks, Lee. Charles L. Bennett, MD, PhD, MPP, is the Frank P. and Josie M. Fletcher Chair and the Smart State Chair and Director of the Smart State Center for Medication Safety and Efficacy at the University of South Carolina. Dr. Bennett was the first physician to hold the A.C. Bueller Chair of Economics and Medicine at the Northwestern University Kellogg School of Management and the Feinberg School of Medicine. He has led seven R01-funded research grants on pharmaceutical safety, with the initial decade funding the Research on Adverse Drug Events and Reports, also known as RADAR, at Northwestern University. And for the past six years, the R01 funding has supported the Southern Network on Adverse Reactions, also known as SONAR, at the University of South Carolina. The SONAR project includes active collaboration with clinicians and researchers throughout the United States, Europe, Canada, and Asia. Dr. Bennett is an academic hematologist-oncologist who has been the principal investigator for over $15 million in peer-reviewed grant support from the NIH, the American Cancer Society, and the Pfizer Foundation. Dr. Bennett is a Phi Beta Kappa and High Honors graduate of Swarthmore College in 1977, a 1981 graduate of the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine, and a 1989 recipient of a PhD and Master's in Public Policy from the RAND Graduate School in Santa Monica, for which he received honors in social science research. He has published over 450 articles in peer-reviewed medical journals, including first authored papers in the NEJM, JAMA, Lancet, Blood, and Journal of Clinical Oncology and Lancet Oncology. Dr. Bennett is currently the principal investigator of the American Cancer Society Institutional Research Grant at the University of South Carolina, which is now in its seventh year of funding. His current paper, Davids and Goliaths, Scientists versus Pharma, was published in the Journal of Scientific Practice and Integrity. He also has a book, Taking on Big Pharma, Dr. Charles Bennett's Battle, which will be out in January 2023. Dr. Bennett will touch on both of these most recent publications in our interview today. 
Thank you so much. We are just so honored to have you here with us today, Dr. Bennett. I know that you had lots of contact with Heather, but for me, I'm just so pleased to finally put a face to the name, a name that helped me so much through my journey with my daughter, Charlie. The work that you have done on fluoroquinolones has just been hugely instrumental in helping to get the black box warnings on that medication, that medication that just has such horrific side effects. And I know that as a community, uh, survivors, fluoroquinolone survivors and loved ones of people harmed by fluoroquinolones, we almost consider you saint-like for the work that you've done. And we just so greatly appreciate it. I think it might be nice today if we could perhaps talk about these black box warnings. I know the fluoroquinolones has had several of them added over a period of years. And perhaps you could just walk us through that process, like what's involved in trying to get those black box warnings on, attached to these medications. Let's be clear, we talked about uh, black box warnings, warnings um, safety advisories, uh, communications, um, side effects, adverse events. They have seven different sections on the label. And as Heather knows, uh, very intimately, when you get to a package label, which is often attached to the product as you get to the pharmacy, uh, you should set aside a couple of days worth of reading time because the labels are, I've been up to, uh, um, read to the places where they do um, product review for uh, quality up in New York and uh, underwriters laboratory. Yeah. And what they did was they printed one of the labels out in, in a font that you can actually see. And the label went for 42 feet. Oh, my so, gosh. Yeah. Nobody can read it. And so, the, as you can imagine, the labels are primarily for uh, lawyer protection. Heather, maybe you agree with me. Yes. Because Heather is clearly a lawyer. And uh, then they uh, claim that it provides some insight into the side effects of a drug. And you would need to have a whole day worth of reading to do it. Uh, we have in the labels what used to be called black box warnings. Uh, the FDA, in their infinite wisdom, thought the word the uh, color black was too sinister. So they made them black uh, box warnings now. It took away the black box warnings because black box warnings, almost you could almost imagine somebody might want to read it. But a box warning, you can really get past and say there's nothing different because the color is not different. Box warning by definition is to the FDA is there's no regulatory requirement of what gets you to a black box warning. So it's sort of like they say, it's, it's the Supreme Court. You know it when you get there. And uh, there's no, uh, say, you, if you have X, Y, Z, A, B, and C, you're in a black box. No such thing as X, Y, Z, A, B, C. The box warning is a hope that the, the patient who reads, who gets the label might read at least a box warning, which should have three to four major concerns, and that's it. And that way, they don't have to read the 57 pages in the morning and the four major concerns in the black box warning. So that's what we've done over time. And in 2006, the box warning, black box at that time, was for Achilles tendon rupture. And I've known several people who've taken one or two doses of quinolone, Cipro or Levaquin, and they end up with the uh, uh, bilateral or unilateral Achilles tendon rupture. They also have shoulder rupture. You can rupture any tendon in the body. My lawyer came from his 
biopsy of his prostate where he got a dose of Cipro and they said it would be good to protect against, uh, protect against an, uh, infection. And then the parking lot at the, at the place where he got his, uh, his uh, biopsy, he fell down because both Achilles tendon ruptured about an hour after he took the biopsy. Those black box warnings in 2006 weren't easy to get a black box. Ralph Nader's group, which Sidney Wolf led, led for health, petitioned and they would not budge, they being uh, Johnson Johnson and Cipro. FDA supported Johnson Johnson Cipro when there's no black box. In the meantime, I had tried a clever idea that I never thought about, except for Richard Blumenthal, currently Senator Blumenthal of Connecticut, then Attorney General of Connecticut, said to me he liked one of my concerns about a different drug and wanted a black box warning on it. And so he and I collaboratively wrote the first collaborative black box warning from an attorney general. He was Connecticut attorney general at the time. And on, the, on it, and we got a year later, just one year later, we got the first ever black box warning collaboratively from attorney general and a public citizen, myself. And uh, Sidney Wolf read about that and he, replicated that and he had the Attorney General of Illinois, Lisa Madigan, join him and they got a black box warning for um, Cipro and Leverquin for Achilles tendon rupture. It did not come easy because they had to file a lawsuit in court beyond doing that all. Besides petitioning it, they had to get a lawsuit in court. There have actually been only six citizen petitions ever accepted in part or in total by citizens. Citizen petitions, just to let you understand, are really misnamed because they're meant to be competitive drug company petitions. And they're primarily there to make sure that the competitor does not market the drug. And there's 95 to 98% of all citizen petitions are written by drug companies trying to prevent another drug company from competing against them. It's so very wait, rare. Wait, so the, the drug companies, just to understand this, because this is just fascinating to me. So the, the drug companies are doing citizens petitions against competitor drugs? Right, and to be primarily a generic drug and a branded drug. Branded drug will say the generic drug is not up to quality and should not be allowed on the market. And mm -hmm. the real regulation is if a generic drug company is being filed against by the brand, the courts have six months to adjudicate. So it mm -hmm. puts a six month halt on the generic company from manufacturing and, and, um, and competing. So these are become a huge game and a way to slow down your competitors. On the other hand, of course, citizens like me try to write a citizen petition. They're, they're, they have no, no, there's no love there. Only six of us have ever done it besides Ralph Nader. And mm -hmm. two of the six that have ever been accepted, two of the, uh, the six that have been submitted by people other than Ralph Nader or Cindy Wolf, mm -hmm. two of the six are by me. And they mm -hmm. both were partially accepted. I've had two rejections. But I have the most institutions in the country mm -hmm. that are partially accepted. Excellent. And I know I was with you. I believe that was in 2016 for the citizens petition that you submitted in regard to the flora quinolone associated disability. And, and just to back up for some of our listeners who are maybe um, just joining in, I know a lot of our listeners will see Dr. Bennett's name and they know quite a bit about fluoroquinolones, either from being damaged by them or having a loved one hurt by them. But in, in this per, particular um, citizen's petition, was that one that was one of the ones you're referring to that was resulted in a, a black box warning? 
um, for the associated disability. So to, to bring things clear, you, uh, Linda Martin, who's very active with me and Heather, uh, has worked with me hand in hand with physicians. And we felt it's filing a physician just like a piece of paper over the transom would be unlikely to be successful and needed some more oomph. So Linda and I and uh, Terry Ashton, we flew in 2014 to Washington, D.C. to the Rayburn Building. And we met with 19 senators, policymakers, about a position that we wanted to write in 2014, which we wanted them to include issues related to fluoroquinolone associated disability, long-term neuropsychiatric disability. We met with 19 senators, 18 of them kicked us out of the office with the boot. And uh, one of them had the aide to Patty Murray. Uh, he was very subtle, he called Terry at home at night, many nights after that saying that he was talking to Senator Patty Murray, liked our petition, was unlike the others. And lo and behold, in 2015, we had an FDA advisory committee meeting which Heather attended. And the advisory committee meeting talked about fluoroquinolones it had been came as a shock to us, maybe not to Heather, maybe you were able to lobby for it, but we had no idea they were going to have that. But when we went to the citizen petition uh, review 2015, November 5th at the FDA, there were many patients, many family members. There was an armed guard. There was a rope line. There was CNN, Wall Street Journal, New York Times. There were a bunch of lawyers. There were a bunch of investment bankers looking to see which way the stock went. And then behind the rope guard was the fact that 21 advisors of the FDA and on two sides, people in suits on the left side with the suits I can't afford to buy. Those are called uh, business people at Johnson Johnson and, and uh, Bayer. And then on the right side was the FDA people. And that meeting they discussed the Cornelian Associate Disability and one FDA uh, employee who Deborah Boxwell said that she had read through notes of people like Heather's son and others. She read about uh, 80 of them. And she felt that despite it not being statistically significant, which maybe David Healy might have addressed in his podcast, that she had never seen such visceral and such real pain. And these narratives, which are never before used by the FDA to define an adverse event, were in fact for her definitive. And she called it FQAD. We left the meeting with a 21 to 1, 18 to 2, and 19 to 1 approval that all three uh, uses, that's uh, uses would be uh, uh, sinusitis, uh, uh, COPD, and also UTI. The quinolones should go, go first line drug to last line drug. We left that meeting with Wall Street Journal supporting us. And as you can imagine, the next day, nothing happened. It was an advisory committee meeting. They decided to disregard our advice, 19 to two, 18 to one, 20 to one. Nothing happened. A year later, Johnson Johnson and Cipro said that they had reconsidered their thinking and these drugs are now last line drugs, 2016. 2018, I get a letter in my office and a brown envelope, no FedEx, no nothing. I open it up, it's from uh, FDA at that time, Janet Woodcock, the interim director of the FDA. And she said she thought that the suggestions that I had made in 2014, she could live with for half of them. And the black box warning became a reality in 2018. So to remind you the timeline, 
It was not a year. It's four years. Emily wow. half covered. That's just terrible when you, well, Heather and I both know how many people's lives have been affected by this um, category of medications and to just know how much effort and, and convincing it takes and then the time. So in that time, how many other people have been harmed? And then you, you brought up and Haley did, Haley did, Dr. Healy did touch on that it's only a very small percentage. I think it's 1% of the people that actually the adverse drug reactions get reported. Is that, is that right? So we published in different journals that we could empirically document only 1% get reported because we had a way of getting two sources of documents. What was what was reported and secondly, what was reported in clinical trials, and we showed only 1% were ever reported. In 2019, after we were frustrated that the black box warning did not actually have the effect of actually warning anybody about the side effect, I filed my third petition related to the quinolone. And this time I asked that there be signature required by patients and doctors before they receive the drug, going through the side effects of people like you, both of you, who have experienced these side effects would know about them in real time because you'd signed a consent form and your doctor signed a consent form and the pharmacist signed the consent form, which is not unusual. It's severe, but not unusual. It's done for retinol acid. It is done for acne drugs. Right. I mean, you can't imagine. We also do it for uh, drugs they use for anemia for cancer patients. And we're just asking to have some really strong way to make sure that you don't bypass something that might come back to really affect lives, your yes. daughter and her son. I think what that, um, well, what you're asking for is really documentation of informed consent. Exactly. And if I, you don't document it, don't get the drug. And we got a letter, a terse letter back in six months from the, from the FDA saying this will never happen in my lifetime. Wow. Now, can we, yeah, I'm, I'm just still kind of, I just want to go back for a second because you said it was too, um, the, the black box warning label for the FQAD actually was, was done because the two pharmaceutical makers, um, Johnson and Johnson being one of them, um, they, Two years later, they decided that was important. What would have been the motivation behind that in 2018? Uh, I think what happened beyond that is uh, to have an advisory committee meet, make a recommendation, and uh, as nothing happened, it must mean there must be ongoing behind the scenes conversations between okay. the FDA and the company. And finally, they convinced them that this is the right thing to do. So there's no real event but I will say it was interesting that we found in 2015, they had them in 2014. The meeting was held in 2015. Another important event was in 2018, the European Medical Association asked me and asked others, and they flew patients in from 27 European Union countries. And each mm -hmm. of them talked about their own personal experiences with fluoroquinolone disability. Now, the uh, FDA in every country in the world has refused to call it fluoroquinolone associated disability. The term that they've used is called long-term disability or long-term neuropsychiatric disability. Uh, they do not call fluoroquinolone-associated disability because I don't think they want another name to be used in the ICD-10 
uh, nomenclature. Mm-hmm. And uh, the name would require, possibly mean that there would be money. Uh, a Florida Department of Social Disability might mean that you'd be a claim for disability Correct. from the government and you would be entitled to some disability payments. So they have purposely not called it. But the Europeans voted 28-0-27 now because uh, Brexit, that what we had found in the U.S. was exactly correct. And they also moved it from uh, last first line to last line in Europe. And that also may have been somewhat of a trigger for the uh, change because the Europeans were moving on it. Uh, Japan followed, Australia followed, New Zealand followed, and Canada followed. Those four countries that I just mentioned at the end did not change the placement of the quinolones from first line to third line. They just made an announcement that these drugs to them were too important to move around and that people could occasionally, and they wrote rarely, have um, permanent neuropsychiatric damage. They were uniquely different from the 28 slash 27 European Union and the US in terms of that. The Japanese, for instance, said that they only saw it with Leviquin in only one or two cases. So they really wouldn't even put much in their label about it, and only on Leviquin and not all the quinolones. But one would think potentially that the motivation of Johnson and Johnson to want to help change the labeling could be the were they under a lot of legal like like lawsuits as well. The lawsuits do not work in this case because the Supreme Court has in its infinite wisdom rolled in the activist case in 2013 that if a drug is generically manufactured, it cannot be sued for anything. And so uh, if you take uh, generic Leviquin or generic Cipro and had a terrible outcome like Heather's son or your daughter being ill, none of that can be sued by anybody. So the reason for putting the label is not because of anything related to lawsuits, it's about just trying to get the label to be complete. Well, yeah, and subsequently prevent people from being harmed because it's, um, you know, the healthcare professionals should be aware. I think that in the perfect world, they'd be aware. The reason why I filed that last position is because I don't think they are aware. And that's why I asked for the consent form. I don't think they're aware. And I have many, many friends who tell me uh, routinely, I've used Cipro and Leviquin for at least three decades. Now, don't forget these drugs came to market in 1986. And the only one who started to raise concern besides concerned patients and family members was me in 2011 and Jay Cohen who died in 2011. And so this, this, this concern this lasted 11 and 14, 25 years before some initial concern happens. And after 25 years, the label gets changed in 2018 with a black box warning, which is 14, 18, 32 years after mm-hmm. these drugs hit the market. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, we we know how many people were harmed. I believe, um, who was the journalist? I think that was in the late 90s, Stephen Freed, who wrote Bitter Pills. I mean, this that was almost identical situation, what happened to his wife, um, although she survived, and, and my son, you know, good having the neuropsychiatric issues, being diagnosed with bipolar, landing in the mental health system. So, I mean, essentially it just sounds like to me that for the 
for the industry anyways, and for our regulatory agencies, it's just um, not really about patient safety, but more about navigating a system to kind of slow down any type of negativity associated with the drug. In the meantime, the pharmaceutical industry is just reaping the profits from it. I mean, is that kind of what's happening here? I don't think so, actually. No. I think what's happened, say, in Stephen Fried's case, his wife was very sick and mentally ill for a year. Yeah. And he wrote a long book, as you read, mm -hmm. as you titled it, Bitter Pills. And now if you talk to Stephen Fried, he already brings it up in a conversation. Really? Yes. So Heather, you know, and, and you, Lee, you're committed, longtime, lifetime advocates. You'll be there. Stephen Fried, you call him up. He's writing a different book now. He's moved on in his life. Wife is a little better, a lot better. And this is all a bump in the road that he hardly remembers. Now, I would like to say that, uh, make it clear that this is not a rare side effect. Exactly. People blow us off all the time and say it's a rare mm -hmm. side effect. And the reason why they do that is because a side effect that causes a heart attack or Achilles tendon rupture is easy to see and feel. Your tendon goes out, you get a tendon repair, your heart attack goes out, you go to the hospital. But when you get a brain attack or brain injury, then they talk to you about drinking too much, having a poor sex life, not accommodating, and millions of things. And it does not include this why. That's why um, almost the majority of these actual events are occur in, a, in, a, in isolation. You'll go see at least 10 doctors who will tell you that everything that has happened is in your mind, it can't be this drug that's been in the market since 1986. And we would have heard more about it. And it's true. And it, yeah, exactly. And I, you know, to, to kind of go along with that, I mean, in my son's case, you had a patient who was telling his doctors, even though he was experiencing these neuropsychiatric issues, that this is from this drug. This this is from this, he's you know, connecting it. And again, None of um, the many, many doctors, you know, wanted to give any validity to that. And I think that that's kind of a good lead in um, because the system really has a way of shutting down these type of, of complaints from patients or get, giving them um, the attention that they need. Um, and I know you have a you have an article that'll be published soon in the Journal of Scientific Practice and Integrity that kind of deals with, we talked a little bit about um, the low number of reports, um, such as FAERS reports, the FDA adverse event reporting system um, from, from doctors and also from patients. You can't really, um, you know, criticize a patient for not knowing to report because it's hard to know that information. And if you're scared and you're having a bad reaction to a drug, especially one that might affect um, your perception and your ability to, to function and your mind, um, more likely than not, that's not going to happen. And we don't have a lot of doctors reporting either for exactly the the um, issues that that you just discussed, Dr. Bennett. But I kind of want to go back because I know Dr. Healy, I know you have been a victim of this. 
And it's just this total um, maligning of anyone, especially in the medical field or scientists who um, come out and speak about, you know, advocate for the patients or try to warn about potential effects of drugs. I just was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. One of the most important things about a drug side effect potentially is an animal model. And my thinking is that deep in the uh, woodwork at Johnson Johnson and at Bayer, their animal model data exists. And it says that when you gave mice this drug, they produced long-term and short-term neuropsychiatric illness because you would not get a drug to market without animal testing. And what we did in, in 2014 and 2012, 13, is with Dr. Raj Fayed, we gave uh, mice uh, increasing doses of Cipro intraparently in the laboratory setting. And we generated the exact same side effects that we talk about now in the mice, which is a really clearly convincing argument that mice are, the, that the, this is a toxic drug. And why is it? The, the basic pathophysiology is, and we identified in the second set of series which my son led, who's now at Oxford in pharmacology, we did a series where we got blood samples from 25 people with neuropsychiatric illness with um, uh, uh, quinolones, and 55% had a genetic abnormality in the cytochrome B450 gene, which led them to mismetabolize, undermetabolize the drug, which means the reason why it's causing these psychiatric effects is many people have a genetic defect that leads them to poorly metabolize the drug and leads to tremendously large CNS brain accumulation of the drug. And then when Raja did the work with the mice and generated the exact same symptomatology, he called me up on a Monday and he says, Charlie, I have it, I've nailed it, it is this. And I went to see the mice and they were depressed, they couldn't hang a handlebar, they couldn't go through a maze. And as increasing dosages, we had neuropsychiatrically damaged mice from Cipro. That was on a Monday. Thursday, I got an email at the University of South Carolina where I work, and there had been a murder on campus, and Raja was dead with the papers over with his dead body lying over his research. And his wife and he had had a fight, and she shot him eight times and killed herself. So I was able to get his research, and it was published. It was completed three days before his untimely murder. Oh, my goodness. And so I... I call the work that I do Raj's legacy. Yes. Because he had just gotten tenure as an academic. And this was the first tenure project. And he just received tenure at 42. And then he was dead. And so I, I felt to me that the, the, the work that he would have continued to do with me on the CIPRO, we would have just continued to find more and more. But because of his untimely murder, we had to shorten it. And then the... Um, I uh, guess the other effects, as I said, is besides Raja, my brother, my, my son's findings on the, uh, on the genetics were stark, startling. We found a patent, provisional patent on that genetic test. And with some additional help, we hope someday to market that test. So before you take Cipro or Levaquin, you take the gene test. And if yeah. your genes aren't going to metabolize the drug, they're going to end up with a CNS glass. Don't take the drug. 
Well, we're not, we're not researchers, but just through the journey with my daughter, um, you know, we've connected with thousands and thousands of people that have been harmed. And there is a commonality in that a lot of them seem to have what they call this, where they don't methylate or they don't detox. But the research that you're saying, which, you know, is not whatever published or, but um, do you feel that it's specific to the fluoroquinolones or that's already sort of a harmful enough drug that that's one of the ones that makes it worse? Would other medications be a factor with this genetic? Um, there are many other drugs that have cytochrome P450 metabolic right. issues. Okay. And this is just one of many. But right. what it accounts for is the fact that this side effect is undoubtedly not rare. The cytochrome P450 out of 25 people we uh, tested, or 54, we had 25, we had 55% with the genetic enterality. So right. the reason why people are not being detected is not because it's rare, but because the doctors won't listen to it and won't report it and won't say anything about it and won't count it. So yeah. we 100% we believe this is a fairly common side effect. And if you walk around the world and talk to people you meet socially on the plane or in the restaurant or anywhere else, they said, this happened to me, have my aunt, my grandmother, my mother, my brother. Mm -hmm. yeah. I agree. And I think too, that part of the problem is, um, well, the doctors aren't aware of the warnings. Um, they don't listen to you when you complain, because one of the things that I heard, we must have seen over 12 different doctors, um, they, they thought, well, the drug's out of the system, so it wouldn't keep ca causing harm. It is a little bit of a delay and these symptoms can keep developing. Um, and then it's given a lot of the time people are, are elderly. Um, so if you have, you know, they just categorize you, oh, you're, you're, you know, feeling depressed, you know, they're associating it with age um, a lot of the time or just- But as you know, from your own personal experience, your daughter and Heather knows from her personal experience, yeah. her son, there's nothing about this protected by age. No. Young people, at the FDA meeting, Heather, that you were at, the 17-year-old girl from uh, Seattle, Washington, came in a wheelchair. She was on her way to Harvard before she took this drug for a bladder infection, and she wasn't going to Harvard. She was going down a wheelchair to the FDA. Yeah, and I think that's why we were, we, our cases were s successful in that we had, like they told me, my daughter was a high-level athlete in perfect health. And then within 10, you know, 10 days, she could barely move her arms like, and had all these issues, which I actually didn't even realize this, the, the anxiety and all those other things were actually related until afterwards when those warnings came out, thanks to you. Um, I didn't even connect those, those ones, but it's because she was so young and healthy that it was like textbook almost. I like, you did, you mentioned in your preamble in that conversation, yeah, and Heather and you were successful for a reason. Could you define to me and to the audience what you mean by successful? Well, that's interesting because what what's successful, you know, you think you're when something like this happens to you in your family, your first inclination is to try to, you know, get the word out. First of all, you're more in my case, I'm mourning the loss of a child and also not wanting this to happen to someone else. Um, in terms of success, I would term success in this in having um, broad knowledge 
amongst patients of the dangers of these drugs, which, you know, signed informed consent, yes, that's, that's extremely important. Um, in terms of court cases, I think Lee and I can both attest, it's a long process. And you think in doing so, you're trying to achieve some type of um, acknowledgement for the wrong that's been done, um, either by a doctor or by the pharmaceutical industry. But the result of those, if it's with the pharmaceutical industry, is going to be a settlement with a non-disclosure or a gag order. So the goal of talking about it's not really going to happen. And even in a basic law case, it's just not, the courts aren't suited to make the type of broad change that's needed in this. So when you speak about success, it's just, it becomes very frustrating as you start to move forward down these, these different paths, paths of what you think are your recourse um, for the type of damage that's done to people you know, only to find out that the impact of, of what you're doing is, is very small. And I think that's what you're getting at Dr. Bennett. Is that correct? Yeah, I think so too. I, I just add to that before he answers is that that's a really great, that made me think just right on the spot. I actually don't think that we were successful. And I think that's one of the reasons for our podcast is that our individual kids cases were about not about trying to get financial compensation. You could put no money on, I give up everything I had to go backwards in time and not have that happen. And I know Heather would give probably 10 times that. Um, so we got acknowledgement, which you seem to want after being told over and over and over that this is in your head, that this isn't happening. So that I felt successful in. But in getting a broad audience reached, we're hoping to do more with the podcast, but obviously the work that you've done trying to get some labeling and hopefully that there will be this one where they have to actually sign, that's going to make way more of a difference because it's going to reach way more people. Well, by physicians out there on the web and anybody wants to sign on to it, you just sign on yeah. to the FDA website and people put a note supporting it. Uh, you can talk, Heather knows some political people in her neighborhood. You can chat those people up and try to get you need the more political uh, agenda you have, more political influence you have, the more likely it is to happen. Bart Stupek, who used to be a congressman from Michigan, his son died of Accutane induced suicide. He's about, he put the black box warning and the patient consent on Accutane. He'd be all over trying to get this for a similar story. I will make a mention to this and I, and I haven't given you my journey in full, I have two pieces, three pieces of information to provide you. Besides the article coming out, uh, my uh, a biography of me has been accepted and would be published by Simon, distributed by Simon and Schuster. Oh, congratulations. And so a lawyer who went to Harvard Law School, taught at Yale and Stanford, and Stanford University of Chicago, University of Texas, who's 93 years old, has spent six years detailing my journey with the Cipro and Levoquin. And they, I also had another journey that we did on uh, EPO, a drug that's used for anemia made by the largest biotech company. When EPO came up in, 80, in 2006, the result was the University of Northwestern where I worked for 24 years as a stellar uh, researcher with the most grants, resulted in them saying that I stole my research, I stole my money, I created no new research. 
and they took all my grants and gave them to people that did not do the research. They took my academic position away and I have been unable to return to a pharmacy medical school for 13, since 88 to 2008. And it's now 15 years that I'm unable to get a job back in a, in a medical school, which I've applied for almost every year and sometimes twice, three times a year. And the important thing about that is they have a note on the internet you can read yourself by Mort Shapiro, S-C-H-A-P-I-R-O at Northwestern, saying that in his, in his opinion, the president of the university and the provost and the dean of the medical school, Charlie Bennett is an unfit researcher and has developed and has uh, propagated uh, research that is not replicable and stolen money in the meanwhile. And that uh, uh, letter, which is on the internet today, this minute, is still there. And I've never had a meeting in my life with Shapiro or Linzer or uh, the, the Dean Nielsen in my life. But they did say, and I heard when this from somebody else, is that somebody who knew the inside of the cave was told by the university, if he could sign a sheet that said that I was all those things, the university could, could blame all their troubles on their mismanagement of my grants on me and I would pay the university's $2.9 million fund, fine. Uh, the end is they were able to give me a $475,000 fine on my mismanagement quote unquote grants, which I don't manage because I'm a researcher, not a grant administrator. And I paid the $475,000, which required me to sell my house, empty out my retirement account. And a part of that, shortly after that, two or three years later, they took away all my research grants, gave them away to people who don't know how to do the research. Research became pro-pharma. They took it from anti-pharma, pharma oversight to a pharma booster. And that research then dissolved. And then they tried to take my medical license away and said that I could not practice medicine. It took me $50,000 to get the license away. And the university just last week had Sidley and Austin, rather large law firm, said that uh, while the note again about me is, um, is, um, is um, not, is uh, meant to be uh, harmful, that unless they could find a fault in it, it's a lie, it needs to stay up there for the rest of the life of the world. And then no reason to take it out because history is history. And they make the point that in the, in the letter that no employee at Northwestern uh, currently, when they wrote the letter in 2013, had ever mismanaged my grants. Well, I left in 2010 and the woman that mismanaged my grants in 2009 was fined, and got a criminal fine, sentenced to jail, quit her job for cause and uh, paid a penalty. And the reason why in 2013 she wasn't considered a current employee four years after I left is because she wasn't a current employee. They fired her four years ago. And so it shows you at the end of the day, uh, they would not and they will not. This letter is used by every medical center that I applied to by their lawyers to, for, for a reason not to allow me to work as an oncologist in a medical school where I have spent 14 years of training and 20 years of research to do my work. The only good side, the silver lining of that is because of that effort, I moved to South Carolina with a brand slight new slate because I lost all my research. I went to an FDA meeting in 2011. At that meeting, I met John Fratty, who has a very severe case of quinolone-associated neuropsychiatric damage. And it was because I met him at that meeting, shook his hand, listened to him, 
that I spent the next 10 years of my life on ciproquinolone, cipro and uh, levoquin associated disability. It's, it's, a, it's a hard journey um, and tragic, but I mean, us, us quinolone uh, affected. We're grateful. We're so grateful. <laughs> not that that's any consolation for what you've had to go through. And we're not done. As uh, Heather knows, uh, I fought a whistleblower lawsuit personally against Johnson & Johnson and Bayer, saying what they've done is not disseminate the safety issues. And we've gone, we're in the public domain now. It's in the public domain. You can just Google it. Okay. But uh, we're in a very positive stream of decisions. The judge, Judge Salis, is the judge in New Jersey whose son was shot by the FedEx driver. And then her husband was shot by the FedEx driver, but not killed. Son was killed. And she is our judge in federal district court. And we are publicly out there. And if the, if the decisions continue to go our way, there will be a $2 billion payment from Johnson & Johnson related to the side effect. So um, we're going to put some of, um, just for our listeners, we're going to have um, the, the, you mentioned that the FDA, there's somewhere that they can go to. Um, can you just repeat? They can do it on the FDA website. It's, there's a citizen petition website where you can sign up. But they should also, and Heather knows this, they can talk to their local political people. And they can read my citizen petition. It's also on the website. And I've had two congressmen from St. Louis, Missouri, both Republicans in that case, uh, support me. And they, the more political support we can get for those uh, petitions to require the consent, the more likely they will actually be enacted. So you can go on the website, you can sign your name up and say you agree with the petition, but you can really talk to your congressman and say, it's, I have a personal reason why this must be so. It's my son and my daughter that I believe in personally are important to me, as you know, Heather with a lost daughter and you with a lost son and you, uh, Lee, with a uh, damaged daughter. You, There's a reason to be there. And your congressman is only meant to help you. And that's why I think going to the congressman would be something terrifically important. Mm -hmm. And this this whole, like the retaliation that was taken against you, Dr. Bennett, I mean, I briefly mentioned um, an article that'll soon be published by you. It'll be published by the time we air this podcast, but this is common. I mean, this is just common for- No, no, let me clarify this. Yeah. Uh, no, no, I'm not saying no? it's common. No? I want to talk to you about icebergs. Mm -hmm. Some people ask me if this is the tip of the iceberg. What do you think? Is this the tip of the iceberg? Mm. Well, Heather, what do you think? A very small tip, I would okay, say. I'm going to tell you, this is the iceberg. This is the this iceberg? This is the iceberg. Mm -hmm. And why do I mean that? In my paper, we have 26 Davids and Goliaths. The paper is called Davids and Goliaths. If you look in Google, under Davids and Goliaths, you'll see a total of zero articles called Davids and Goliaths. You'll see a thousand called David and Goliath. Because Aaron Brockovich, she's a David. Uh, the guy from the insider was a David. People are Davids, like David Healy is a David. But 26 Davids are never in one paper. Everybody fights a very lonesome fight where they get slaughtered by the company and by the university. And in my case, the Department of Justice on top of it. Yeah, unbelievable. It was, 
uh, you know, to fight the university was hard, but I could get through it. Mm-hmm. To fight the drug company was hard, but I realized I would get through it. Mm-hmm. But the Department of Justice U.S. Attorney, Assistant U.S. Attorney Kurt Linden said to me in 2013, he goes, Charlie, let me just tell you the three most evil people in Chicago ever. Those are Rod Vigoyevich, the governor who was in jail, Scooter Libby, who worked for Ronald Reagan, was in jail, and Charlie Bennett. And he said, I would do everything in my power to make sure all three of those people go to jail. Could you imagine that? And then he wrote, he said, you know, I'm going to write a press release about you. It's going to cost you your job. And I don't have to be accurate. Nobody vets my press release. And so he wrote one parallel to the Northwestern one, where he talked about nobody at the university was involved because the woman was involved had been fired because she was in jail. Surely she was not employed by Northwestern when she was in jail. And he said, I can say anything I want, and I will have your, your career in three months' time, and you'll be broke. And I can take your family's incomes, too. So there'll be nothing there for you. He said, you will learn what it's like to work at Starbucks. Wow. Oh, my God. Can you imagine getting that from the Department of Justice? No. When all you're doing is research, saving, as my old boss said, I've saved more lives in American medicine than anybody ever in the history of the United States. People can save lives by generating new drugs, that's empathy. The amount of lives I've saved on safety is at least millions of lives. And more than anybody would do, and I've done 50 drugs like Cipro and Leverquin. As my mother said to me before she died three years ago, she said, they will kill you. But when they do kill you, they won't, you won't know who did it. So the 26 days of my paper, the reason why I say Heather is not the tip of the iceberg, of the 26 people, and I personally interviewed almost all of them. I went all over the country and the world to visit with them. I sat down with them. We had lunch. Many of them had hidden these stories inside their bodies, inside their heart, inside their heads for decades because the pain of losing their job and the fight they had was so real that they never wanted to talk about it again. And I'm coming in there, bringing it up again. And everyone I have in my paper on David's glass is named. The 26 Davids are named in my paper. And more than that, I have, I have a quote from each of them in their own words that have been published in uh, Senate hearings, FDA hearings, news, uh, New York Times, uh, 60 Minutes, in their own words about the pain that they went through. So I didn't ask them to tell me something. I just looked through this published literature for the words that they used to describe their own personal experiences. So, and I cited the paper. So you want to find the words? I give you the actual page number of the testimony. Let me give you an example of one piece of words. Tyrone Hayes, who's been in the New Yorker magazine, had a very tremendous uh, positive negative experience at UC Berkeley. Graduate from Harvard undergrad, Berkeley PhD, chairman of the, uh, the department. His department is on animal, animal biology. He found that when you gave frogs a pesticide, the male frogs became feminized, much to the disappointment of Monsanto and Syngenta at that time. And they, as he presented his talk with Syngenta next to him at a lecture, Syngenta vice president said to Tyrone, who he knew, Tyrone's an African-American chap, about 5'3", his wife's Korean or Asian. Uh, the guy said to Tyrone, he says, you're going to give a very important talk. and You should say what you believe. He says, I just want to let you know that we're not above 
murdering people. We're not about raping your wife. We're not about lynching your kids. And Tyrone said to the, the guy, his name is in the book, my book, he said to him, he said, that is the most disgusting thing I've ever heard in my life. But fortunately, I have my tape recorder on. And that he has that on, and he's presented that around the world. And he has that tape. That's a real tape. It's right there, and they do that. And Tyrone, they, they have an internet site called Tyrone Hayes, which is owned by Syngenta, calls him a pedophile. And then when you go look up Google Tyrone Hayes, you'll find these most demeaning things about Tyrone Hayes that the drug company has populated with inaccuracies, uh, terrible things about Tyrone. A hundred counties sued Syngenta for the water was poisoned and a hundred counties were fined or settled for a hundred million dollars, the amount of money it takes to clean that water up and the damage it's doing to the kids in those neighborhoods. That's just one of the other 26 of me. Every story is as powerful as that. We monetize, what does these 26 stories mean? The 26 stories, here's the thing we found. This is, this is even worse besides the stories. All those companies, they were eventually asked to pay criminal fines or, civil, or settle civil lawsuits. The total amount of money involved in those lawsuits was $27 billion. So that's why I say it's not the tip of the iceberg, because if it were, the tip of the iceberg is 1%. That would mean that would be $2.7 trillion involved in this kind of work, which would be far more than COVID. And we wouldn't even talk about COVID today if this were $2.7 trillion. We showed a million lives lost from these drugs, from the harm that they did, either very severely imaged, damaged or dead. We also showed 13 of the companies that we evaluated of the 26, 27 companies evaluated 26 people, 13 of them when they were identified by the Davids as submitting fraudulent data to the FDA for approval, 13 of them submitted fraudulent data for the FDA for approval, and the Davids in our stories pointed that out. When they pointed out that Davids lost their jobs and the FDA data went, to the, went through and the drugs got approved. So the answer to what happened here is the messenger lost their jobs, the people who were actual culprits got these drugs through the FDA and sold. The total sales of these drugs are trillions of dollars we're talking about here. And we asked in the paper, in the conclusion, that the just answer for this work should be not destroy 26 people like me who have been unable to work for several decades. And I've gone to the best medical school, college, graduate school, PhD programs in the country. And I've been sidelined except for the quinolones for the last 15 years. And I don't see patients for the last two years. And I went to, I didn't go to average school. I went to Penn. I went to, I work at Johns Hopkins now. I went to UCLA. I went to University of Chicago. I went to Duke University, Northwestern University. We're talking about schools, Swarthmore College, that you could never imagine anybody getting to all five or six of those schools ever in their lifetime. And to have that kind of training and that kind of education not being put to use to do what's it's, it's a tragedy. It's, it's, it's a criminal crime. chain. It's a, it's a crime. It's criminal. It's, it's criminal. criminal. They should, there should be charges against all of them. And I mean, just the, the 26, how many, I mean, scientists, doctors like you are few and far between. Uh, 
what we're seeing now, we see that more than ever now with, with this recent pandemic is, is most are just going to go along with the program. They're not going to yeah. speak up. And how many lives are lost there? Who would want to lose your job, your career, your reputation, your friends? How many of my friends have deserted me? I can't even go see half, 99% of my friends. Mm -hmm. The job getting pushed away from me, losing my house, my retirement plan. Every time my son goes to school when he was in high school, looks up the internet, all they have is Department of Justice press release about me. He says, Daddy, I didn't know you were a criminal. Hmm. Amazing. Well, if it's any consolation, you know, the, the, the result of this system that silences those who have integrity and have a commitment to, to science and speaking out, I mean, this system, there's so much blood on its hands. I am not the only one. I lost a child. I mean, my son should be here today, but for, you know, the refusal to speak out on behalf of a whole lot of people, certainly not you, Dr. Bennett, but it's just, it's horrific what you have to go through for doing what is the right thing. What is the human thing? I mean, the result of this system is families like mine, you know, a bright young man who lost his life over this, you know, for, for profits. So, so it, it, it seems to me at the very core of this is they just want to preserve the income and the money and paying off a few people is probably just chump change for a lot of, you know, those in the industry. But it, it's, it's just so difficult to wrap your head around such an unconscionable system. I mean, just the violence of the healthcare system and medicine system itself. It, it's, you know, I commend you and I know Lee does too, but it's just, it's, it's just so sickening to hear this. You know, the point is that there is no way forward for somebody to follow behind me. Mm -hmm. I can't in good faith tell my son, I hope you save as many lives as I did. And I hope you don't mind being put out of work before you ever complete your life mission. And I hope you don't mind losing all your friends in your house part of your medical license and all your grants and everything you work for. Mm -hmm. If you're willing to give all that up to save people's lives and go at it, there's nobody in their right mind who will follow behind me. And if we lose, well, I pray there are people who will, <laughs> I pray there are. If we lose all the Davids and, and because of the way that they're treated and, and destroying your life, just to speak up and do the right thing, then where does that leave all of the public and the safety? Like, it's a really, really scary thing to think about. That's why my current lawsuit is so important and it has to be won. If that lawsuit is won, Johnson Johnson will pay $2 billion and that will provide an opportunity for young Davids to see a path forward. Yes. I'll be the first ever in the history of the United States to take my research, which it started in 2011, filed as a false claims lawsuit with the government. I've been certified by the court as the finder and relator, a person with unique uh, non-public information. So other people who can do research, who want to do research, do what I do, which is I file my work, I do assist petitions, I file the uh, key TAM lawsuit, and there's a whole package of things that are non-traditional. Nobody flies and files a petition. I did. Nobody files a whistleblower lawsuit. I did. I've been certified that way. In a year and a half or two before the next presidential election, 
it is our goal and our hope that that money will come forward. And then people who want to do the right thing may have spent a lot of years suffering. But at the end of the day, 300 million, 600 million comes back towards us. There'll at least be some financial gain for the work that's happened. The book is very important for my effort as well. Uh, I hope it's called Resilience because that's what it is. We have been talking with Hollywood producers, uh, Al Ruddy, who just did the movie 50 year anniversary of The Godfather, which he and Francis Ford Coppola got the Academy Award for, has done a 10 part series on how he made The Godfather. He's 93 as well. And he wants to co produce my movie about this work. We have a singer, Carol Connor, who got the Academy, uh, not the Academy Award. She wrote the song Rocky, Up and Away. She did not get the Academy Award because Barbara Streisand won the award that year for the way we were, 1977, the year that Elvis Presley died. But that song is by far the most downloaded song on any song ever from a movie. And she's agreed, the person when I've seen her, to make my movie. So we feel that between the book, the movie, the court case, Sis Petition, some of the work that you'll follow on, people like that, this will be an enterprise. If you all take a chance to look at it on Hulu TV, there's a TV show called The Resident. You may or may not have seen it. It's The Resident. It's on Hulu, you can buy it for a buck, two bucks. It's made by Haney Holden Jones, who's a partner of Martin Scorsese. It's been on Fox for seven years. But season three, episode seven, is called Woman Down. Season three, episode 10 is called The Whistleblower. And both episodes are about my work. So we've been able to get it into Fox TV. We helped the movie, the book. So I, as Heather knows, you can't just take one avenue. You've got to take multiple avenues. Yeah. And you have to be persistent. I don't sleep ever. This is something I believe in day or night and night. Tim Robbins is going to play me, just let you know. Six foot two people. Oh wow! <laughs> oh gosh, that would be that would be just spectacular. In my hair. <laughs> <laughs> that would be spectacular. I am just Dr. Bennett. You are so impressive, and no, I know that you've had to go through quite a bit over the past decade, longer than that. But it's people like you who give us the energy to push forward in doing the small parts that we are. In, in, in trying to address these issues. You have been instrumental. Our children were harmed. Heather did lose her son, but my daughter is here today because of those warnings. Because if I did not have those black box warnings and just the information and the petitions that you guys did at the FDA, I would have no credibility and I would not, she wouldn't, her symptoms, everything. We would have been down a completely different path. Well, she was going down the yeah. Let me say this. I got a call from a husband from Tampa maybe five months ago. His wife, she had no prior medical psychiatric history. She had like a sinus infection or, or a pulmonary infection. Her internist gave her Cipro. She took the first dose and she felt foggy. She looked at the package insert. It says on page one, it can cause CNS toxicity. She wondered to herself, what does CNS toxicity mean? It says, if you want to learn about it, go to page 42 of the 72 page. I think, Heather, you've already done that. They're going mm -hmm. deeper on this. And then it says, some people have committed suicide after one or two doses. 
She took a screenshot of those statements and sent it to her doctor, her internist. He told her not to worry because it was overblown. She tied herself to a chair in the uh, swimming pool area in Tampa. She switched, she, she moved the chair into the swimming pool. When her husband came from the store, she was underwater and she was dead in child. Mm -hmm. Yep. And that's yep. only one dose. And no history, no mental no health history. history, no history of depression. As with Heather's son, that they're not talking about immediate side effects only like this. No. People can get psychiatrically damaged over months. Mm -hmm. And then they throw you on a bunch of different psychiatric medications, which can only damage you even more. Yes. And then they months later, the person can be dead. Yeah. And so that's, we're not that's... talking about that, just immediate death. It was a very slow walk with Shay. He knew yep. he connected the dots, but it was a slow walk. And, you know, ironically, he was put on more drugs by Johnson and Johnson, more drugs that are similarly as dangerous, resveratrol, which resulted in numerous lawsuits. It's just this slow unraveling in a perfect storm of, um, destructive treatments when you're already experiencing a, a toxic reaction to another drug. So this has just been a wonderful interview, Dr. Bennett. I appreciate you so much. I want to highlight this article again, and we'll have it, a link to it on our, our website. It's David's and Goliath, Scientists vs. Pharma. Um, it's going to be in the Journal of Scientific Practice and Integrity. Um, just so appreciative. We'll get that um, petition going for you, most definitely, for all that you've done for all of us and all the victims out there. Um, we surely want to support you and let you know we appreciate you. And your work has been life-saving for many people and life-changing for others. I know for me, I can't bring my son back. Um, the result of this system and the result of, of the incentivizing treatments and prioritizing profits, you know, results in death. That is the result. Instead of destroying the messenger, mm -hmm. we want the corporate executives who do these frauds and work to end up in jail. To be accountable. To yeah. end up in jail. That's yeah. simple. That's where they belong. And they will stop that as a company and as a system and as a industry. Mm -hmm. Once five or 10 of these corporates find themselves on a one or two or three year vacation. Mm -hmm. Hopefully longer than that. Yeah, <laughs> Hopefully longer than that. Well, thank you. And we hope you'll join us on another episode. And um, as Heather mentioned, we will uh, post all your links and we'll also have your information um, on our website. Uh, Ken, uh, I appreciate so much support that you all have given me for the last 10, 12 years that I've been doing this journey. Uh, but I will say that uh, Linda and I, and a couple others, one from Britain, a woman in the US, and a student, we have collaborated on an update on the Cipro and Leviquin associated toxicities, which will be published in the eClinical Medicine, which is a Lancet journal. As soon as they go through the last round of reviews, which seems to me that they will take, and then a copy edit. So we'll have a very informative paper. That paper reviews how the various toxicities from the quinolones have been reviewed and analyzed in six different geographic regions, US, Canada, uh, Australia, Japan, New Zealand, and 
in there. I forgot one in there. But um, the thing that's amazing that is uh, U.S. And, and, and Great Britain, U.S. Oh, Great Britain separate because it's no longer part of the EU. U.S. and the EU and now Great Britain have made strongly definitive statements. These drugs are not first-line therapies. The mm -hmm. other three regions, Australia, Japan, and New Zealand, do not make similar concerns. And the most recent side effects that have been known is aortic aneurysms, aortic valve rupture. And uh, again, there's a, a not complete agreement on this, but there's been a Dear Doctor letter sent out in Europe. In the US, no Dear Doctor letter. Mm -hmm. We want to harmonize these safety messages for the entire world, not just US. Mm -hmm. And that's what we want to harmonize. But people shouldn't have to read six different labels and get six different opinions, especially on this, and particularly on this worldwide, terrible and life-threatening and life-ending side of things. Well, thank you so much. Um, just really appreciate you. And know that the work you've done has just impacted us and our lives. And we thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for joining us today on this episode of No Risk. And remember, being your own expert is the best way to prevent yourself or your loved one from being harmed. And please join us for future podcasts and help support us by subscribing, providing some feedback, and of course, giving us a five-star rating. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram at No Risks and check us out on our website at norisk.org where you can read our stories, suggest future topics, and share your stories.